Today is day one of our October-November seven-day session. Uh, it's the 30th of October, 2022. And we're going to uh, pick up where we left off three years ago uh, when I last gave Sashin here in the Sendo um, and explore a little bit the teaching of uh, Maureen Stuart Roshi. And we'll be drawing on two main texts. One's um, called Meetings with Remarkable Women and with the subtitle Buddhist Teachers in America by Lenore Friedman. I think it came out in the 70s. Oh, no, later. Um, copyright 1987. And uh, the other one is uh, Subtle Sound, the Zen teachings of Maureen Stewart, um, edicated, ed, um, edited by Roko Sherry Chayat. Um, it's mainly uh, transcripts of, t- of talks, whereas Meetings with Remarkable Women is um, more an uh, interview and some description of her uh, leading a retreat. We're going to start off um, with a little bit of biographical material, which may be a repeat for, for uh, some of you if, you've, if you heard those talks back in uh, 2019. And just to say that um, in terms of this, this particular uh, teaching, you really can't beat the, the old tongue masters when it comes to Taisho material. But it's also good sometimes, I think, to um, hear from our contemporaries and maybe they can feel a little bit more accessible. We can identify a little bit more with them. Uh, Maureen Stewart was born on March the 3rd, 1922, so um, just about a month off the, um, the birthday of, of my father, so one generation back from, from, from this person anyway. So 1922. The most info influential figure in her early childhood was her maternal grandfather, Sam Haight, who worked a 640-acre farm in Saskatchewan, Canada, with loving and meticulous care. The son of a wrathful preacher, he had little use for what he considered the platitudes and hypocrisy of organized religion. His own beliefs tended toward an idiosyncratic blend of pacifism and socialism, but he eschewed any and all platforms. What particularly struck Maureen was the way he created every, treated every being, sentient and insentient alike, with respect and appreciation. Her immediate family lived in the small town of Keeler, 
where her father owned a bank and her mother ran a proper household and made sure that her three children were exposed to the important cultural refinements. Fortunately for Maureen, these included music lessons. She took to the piano avidly, sensing its grandeur and its potential for taking her beyond the petty-minded atmosphere of small-town preoccupations. In addition, she was nourished by her frequent visits to her grandparents' farm with the sod-roofed house and by her solitary forays into the prairie where she would sit absolutely still for hours at a time, infused with a feeling of intimacy with every blade of grass, every breeze. It's um, often these childhood experiences of nature which um, help to, uh, to us to form our faith mind. We, we can sometimes remember very specific episodes where we experienced oneness with things. And these, these experiences really uh, help in getting us on the mat sitting. Just a little bit from the other book about her childhood. There's a little bit more here. When I was a very small girl, my mother said, I always needed time to just go and sit and be quiet. Our house was a very lively place, always many people there, visitors from all over, many things going on. She said I used to take a pail of cold pancakes away for the day and go and sit somewhere quietly. I always seemed to need that. At one point I went and visited a little store and found a tiny Buddha and some incense, and I used to sit in my room with them. I must have been seven or eight. This was always a need in me, a feeling that you had to, every so often, shut down everything, just be in touch. I always went outside somewhere to a hill where there was a wind, or to a swamp that had tall grasses, and would sit and listen to critic, to crickets and listen to birds and shut down all mental activity. She also has a little bit to say about her, her grandfather here. My grandfather was a wonderful teacher, just in the way that he conducted his life. He didn't know anything about Buddhism, I'm sure, but I really feel he was a Buddhist innately. He behaved in a way that was very respectful of every living thing, of every human being he came in touch with. He never went to church, and he was a professed agnostic. Sometimes, when he got really strong about it, he said he was an atheist. But he practiced a wonderful way of life. When people came to his house, he offered them whatever he had. If they needed something and he saw they needed it, he gave, without any thought of return. He treated his animals and everything on his farm with the most wonderful consideration, love even. He was my first teacher, and I often speak about him in my talks. Really, when we get down to it, it's, it's what we do that really counts, not what we say or what we, we profess to believe in.
When Maureen was 11, her life changed suddenly and radically. She was um, sent off to a school, a boarding school in Winnipeg, Manitoba. And she experienced um, uh, really intense, aching loneliness, uh, felt out of place and terribly homesick. But um, her music was to provide the solace that she needed and a chance to express emotions that were um, quite rigidly suppressed in the school. She stuck it out and was able to do well um, in all subjects except religion, uh, which she failed because of her refusal to swallow biblical scripture unquestioningly. I think also here of, of Roshi Kaplow, who started um, an atheist club in his school and was threatened with um, expulsion if he continued with it. Often the, the, the stro- strong um, religious views can be expressed in resistance to religion. She began giving piano lessons at the age of 12, and continued doing so for the rest of her life. After graduating, Maureen stayed on at Riverbend to teach music, continuing her own studies at the music department of the University of Manitoba. She began performing in concerts throughout the Western United States and Canada. She was enthusiastically received, and among her many awards was one from the French government that enabled her to study with Robert and Gabi Casadesos and Nadia Boulanger at the American Conservatory in Fontainebleau, as well as with Alfred Cortot, considered one of the greatest piano theorists of the century. Cortot was so impressed with Maureen that he gave her free lessons. Both Boulanger and Courtois were inspiring and demanding in ways that went beyond the discipline of music. Everything they did seemed imbued with a profound level of understanding, and their influence on her, like Sam Hates, that's her grandfather, was deep and lifelong. Maureen loved France and really immersed herself in all the culture that it had to offer. Um, and one day, in a, in a used book sta- uh, store, she came across um, a book on um, Eastern philosophy. And uh, in it, there was a brief m- reference to meditation in the last chapter of the book. The teachings of Zen was the title of it, and um, it uh, impressed her, although she wasn't to um, really act on that impression for many years. I knew right away that this was it, she told me. But when I returned to the United States, there didn't seem to be any process through which I could learn more about Zen. She got married, she had 
children. Um, they were living in, in New York City. And uh, one day she was uh, watching television while she did housework. And she says, there was a small man with bushy eyebrows talking about Zen. And of course, it was D.T. Suzuki. So she, she felt she was on, on track now for something. And right um, not far from where she lived on another morning after taking the, her children to school was um, she discovered um, a small brass plaque um, saying Zen Studies Society on uh, West 81st Street and um, she knocked on the door and a young monk came and, uh, and she asked if she could learn about Zen and he um, stuck a piece of paper in, his hand, in her hand and closed the door and it was um, a schedule for sittings A few days later, while she was walking in Riverside Park, uh, she encountered another Japanese monk, a small, thin figure with large, translucent ears and a shaved head, wearing the black robes of a Zen monk and sneakers. And this, she found out later, was Hakuin Yaksatani Roshi, what was the chance in a, in a city the size of New York that she should bump into Yasutoni Roshi? She went to um, workshops at the Zen Studies Society, introductory workshops, um, trying to find time between her duties looking after her kids. And... Um, and shortly after this, she went to the Zendo and uh, saw a sign-up sheet for a week-long sishin led by Yasutani Roshi. And this was to be her, her um, initiation by fire into, into Zen. She, received a call, she, she signed up and then received a call from somebody asking whether she could sit still and whether she could get up early in the morning. <laughs> that, those were the two criteria that you had to pass in order to be able to go to the Sashin. The day came. Maureen boarded the train to Clarenville. They were having their retreat in a uh, uh, Theosophical Society's retreat centre um, uh, with several other Zen students and their excitement was evident, for the conductor came over and asked them where were they off to. We're going to a place in the mountains, someone explained. Will there be entertainment, a floor show, he asked. Not quite sure of what she meant, Maureen found herself saying, oh yes, the floor show goes on all day. When they arrived... Um, the place was uh, quite strange, a little gloomy, 
and the first um, job was to clear out all the furniture out of the main room and and create a zendo. She gets um, uh, she gets asked by um, in an interview with Yasutani before the start of the session whether she was here to do bompu zen or to become enlightened. And she didn't really even know what they were talking about, but whatever she said was was okay because she was ushered into the sashin. And she, she says, the flies were terrible, just constant. No one told me anything about the, the many rituals, the bowing, and at the end of the day I decided it was just impossible to go on. I had made a mistake. I had had it with this zen stuff. This Zen stuff also included barked commands and an atmosphere of general hysteria. <laughs> uh, this is this is the the uh, tradition that we inherited, or Roshi Kaplow inherited, uh, when he came and started giving sessions in the United States. Students were urged toward Kensho through shouting, exhorting, and the liberal use of the kyosaku. To make matters worse, the pain from an old skiing accident was making the four, 14 or so hours of sitting in the cross-legged posture physically unbearable. She called her husband and told him that she was ready to go home. Reminding her of how much she wanted to go, he encouraged her to try for one more day. I stuck it out, she says, through nights of hideous laughter on the part of one of the students and through days of terrible pain, and things did get better. Uh, once Yasutani wrote, or she heard about this injury, she um, he encouraged her just to sit any way she could. And she eventually, um, as people here will relate to, managed to find a posture that she could maintain through um, necessity. And she was able to um, stay till the, the end of the session. And more than that, she says, by the fifth day, I was hooked. I knew I would go to every single session from then on. And she was to um, develop, in spite of his um, extreme methods, to develop a strong appreciation for Yasutani Roshi. Um, She says, the most resistant student finally knew that he was there for them present with wholehearted effort to wake them up, that the boundless vow to save all beings was compressed into his small, frail body. a little bit of background information about Yasutani Roshi's um, biography. He came from an extremely poor family and his mother uh, actually left him at a temple because 
at least in part because she couldn't feed him, uh, when he was only four years old. Uh, But he refused to eat or talk. And finally the monks had to ask his mother to come and take him back because he was wasting away. Um, A year later, he did in fact go off to a small Rinzai temple um, which had a, a school and he was um, educated there uh, in what he describes as being um, by a very strict but affectionate priest. But you can imagine this, this, this trauma in his background of being, at the age of four, being abandoned at this, the earlier monastery, what effect that might have had on him in his life. The other um, very major uh, influencer who became his main, her main teacher was Soan Nakagawa, um, the uh, abbot of Ryutakuji. Soan Nakagawa, of course, was also very important for Roshi Kaplow. Um, his first teacher when he got to Japan and um, the one who guided him to uh, uh, Harada Roshi's um, Hoshinji and where he also um, met uh, Yasutani Roshi So uh, Maureen got herself along to every single session she could uh, through through the years that um, uh, Yasutani Roshi was visiting, and um, and then also afterwards with uh, Edo Roshi, um, Daibosatsu. Eventually her family and she moved from, from uh, the New York area to um, uh, Massachusetts. Where there was a um, Zen Buddhist, a Buddhist society in Cambridge. She also describes her encounter with Soen Roshi um, at an evening sitting in the New York Zendo in 1968. She says she felt a remarkable connection, um, like an open channel. Uh, she found Soen Roshi's teaching style quite different from that of Yasutani Roshi. Soen Roshi preferred to allow students to ripen at their own rate. 
His zazen was inspiring in its palpable profundity. He often sat through kinhin after kinhin. Um, and his Teicho and Doksan meetings were filled with spontaneity, humor, loving kindness, and poetry. He was passionately fond of theater, music, and literature, and was famous in Japan for his haiku. Goethe and Beethoven were among his favorite Western artists, and at the conclusion of the Sishin that summer, the, petitions, the participants were treated to the Ode to Joy from Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. This um, urbanity and, and uh, love of, of um, music and literature and so forth was um, one of the things that um, was helpful to Roshi Kaplow coming from the States um, uh, to give him a sort of um, a gentler slope to get involved in Zen um, and get to the point where he was ready to, to undertake uh, the strict um, training offered at Hoshinji, but Soen was the one that judged when that was the time and, and sent him off uh, to, to do Sishin there. So as a, um, no doubt as a musician, this, this love of, of music and so forth was also very attractive to Maureen Stewart, and more than that, they had this deep affinity which is really so important within uh, in, uh, Zen training. At a certain point, uh, Maureen um, received a raksu at a Jukukai ceremony and was given the name Myo-on, which means subtle sound, the, t- the title of this book. So eventually Maureen became the um, uh, office holder of the Cambridge Buddhist Association and um, came to be in charge of the the Zen practice um, at at their Zendo in Cambridge. This is... um, Roko Shirichaya, the editor of this book, writing, she says, Students had found Maureen even in her suburban home in Chestnut Hill, where a single cushion in a corner of her living room soon drew others. The group quickly outgrew that space, so Maureen set up a zendo in what had been a basement playroom. Once the two women met, it wasn't long before Mrs. Mitchell, Elsie Mitchell, who's very key in starting off this organization. Mrs. Mitchell was relying on Maureen in many capacities, from leading Zazen at the Cambridge Buddhist Association, Zendo, to taking over the correspondence and library responsibilities. All of this activity was balm for Maureen's spirit, a warm rapport developed between the two, each of whom spoke of the other as her teacher. 
and Mrs. Mitchell was a most inconspicuous yet steadfast supporter. She made it clear that Maureen was not to worry about financial matters. If something was needed, it mysteriously appeared. So a real partnership developed between these two women in, in their bringing uh, Zen to the um, people of Cambridge, Massachusetts. They were to um, purchase a large um, building, a, a three-story brown, brown shingled house, um, and the practice there flourished with many people coming to sit. She um, eventually was to split, split from the folks at Daibosatsu over um, Edo's um, uh, unethical behaviour. Um, Although she no longer practiced with Edo Roshi, in 1982, Maureen returned to Daibosatsu Zendo, where, in a private encounter at the Old Lodge, Soan Nakagawa Roshi transmitted his dharma to her. Tell your students to call you Roshi, he said, and that was that. No ceremony, no authentication, no formal recognition, no lineage papers. He, in fact, said not a word about it to anyone else. It was perhaps his greatest koan for her, a transmission definitely outside the scriptures, in keeping with his unconventional spirit. How to communicate this formless transmission? What proof did she have? Immediately, rumours started flying, and there was no small degree of disgruntlement. Perhaps she had made the whole thing up, wanting some formal recognition. Perhaps this was simply another of Soen Roshi's eccentric acts, a mischievous test. No one quite knew how to receive this information, which quickly spread along the Dharma grapevine. As for Maureen herself, after dutifully communicating what Soen Roshi had asked her to, she told her students, please just call me Maureen. It was not in her nature to seek credentials or titles, she simply went on as she had before, wearing the same robes, keeping the same busy schedule of sesshin, daily practice, piano recitals and lessons, spending time with her children, travelling. Um, ultimately, um, it's students who make the teacher, not the correct papers or the the right um, ceremonies. In our tradition, the, the, the uh, first example of that was Roshi Kaplow, who um, had split with, with Yasutani Roshi over a number of things, including the behavior of Edo by Daibosatsu. And so he didn't, he didn't have the, the correct papers, you could say. But 
over time, many, many people have found, did find him to be a fine teacher who could, who could uh, act as uh, their spiritual midwife. And this is, is what we see also with Maureen, that she, she was able to connect with people and offer the Dharma. Um, she didn't teach the koans. She hadn't gone through the koan curriculum with Soan Nakagaroshi. So it was based on um, Mu, the koan Mu, most of her teaching. In uh, 1984, Asan Nakagawa, she died. And um, she really then, then had to um, find, find her independence without his, his uh, physical presence. Sherry Chart writes, In the wake of Soen Roshi's death, Maureen's wisdom light grew ever brighter. Turning her unflinching gaze on her personal life, she resolved to uproot all traces of self-deception. This included eliminating the glass or two of wine she had been relying on each evening to dull the painful recognition that her marriage was over. What resulted was a fierce clarity by which she was able to proceed with the very difficult yet necessary step of separation and eventual divorce from her husband. When Maureen was diagnosed with cancer in 1987, she never exhibited a moment of self-pity or fear. If anything, the level of intensity at which she customarily lived was raised several notches. Plans had already been made for travel to India with a small group of students. She made the choice not to have the advised surgery, and despite the uncertainty about her condition, she went off and had a marvellous time conducting zazen under a descendant of the Bodhi tree, beneath which Shakyamuni Buddha had realised the fundamental birthlessness and deathlessness of it all. She did return and, and um, have to go through months of tests and... and uh, disagreements between doctors over, over the best course of action. But she continued through increasing weakness to attend session after session. She never seemed to pace herself despite the fretful expressions of concern on the part of many of her students, her family and her friends. She brushed any attempts at commiseration aside and refused to discuss her condition, and she never complained, even toward the end, when she was hiding little notes to herself regarding the effectiveness and timing of various pain medications. Her demeanour was that of a fierce warrior woman. Maureen sat through Rohatsu 18, uh, 1989 and the weekend session of January 1990 with an all-but-constant cough, 
but she sat nobly and fully present. She um, decided where her uh, ashes were to be spread after she uh, died. And uh, people got the feeling that she was, she was um, teaching them or preparing them for her passing. At this time, she, she conducted a memorial service for um, one of her students, a um, Vietnamese student. And in the, the talk she, that she gave as part of the memorial service, she said the following. With this memorial service, we remember with tender reverence the members of our families who are no longer living. Let us realize that the ones whom we remember today existed before this birth, and that time they were without and at that time they were without a body. Then substance was added to that spirit, and they were born. Let us be clear to us that the same process of change which brought them to birth eventually brought them to death in a way as natural as the progression of the seasons. May we remind ourselves that we are not to fall into a complacent state of mind where we are insensitive to suffering beings. Yes, we must cultivate a peaceful mind, firm and imperturbable, but we must keep the heart sensitive to the needs of others. The way is epitomized in the Kanon Sutra. Kanon grows arms without ceasing to reach out to every cry for help. Let us try to extend this compassionate wisdom over the whole universe. Living with cancer, Maureen was vibrantly, vigorously alive. When the time came to go, she opened her arms to death the way she had embraced every moment of her life. She entered the hospital in February of 1990. The following weekend, 25 students sat Sishin at their zendo. The family gathered around and... Um, she passed away on the, on the 26th of February, surrounded by her children. Her last words were, wonderful peace, nobody there. She didn't leave any Dharma heir um, or establish a lineage. Um, and Shayat writes that her legacy was all-inclusive. Everyone who came into contact with her, whether as a Zen student or as a piano student, a casual visitor or a family member, felt change for having known her. Maureen was endlessly grateful to the many people in her life who had helped, encouraged and supported her in her music and her Zen practice. 
to her Bodhisattva's vow was added the driving force of her sense of obligation. Teaching, imparting her own understanding to others, was her means of repaying those debts. It, it's, it is so for all of us. We, we pay forward. We, we express our gratitude by um, becoming Dharma vessels. By, by upholding this practice that we um, have inherited, this form that we practice in when we come to Sishin. Sishin really is, is an extraordinary human creation. A living, dynamic container for our spiritual strivings and it relies on us for its vitality for its um, authenticity Health, Maureen taught us during those last months, is not the opposite of sickness. Although our habitual way of thinking is dualistic, in reality we are all, are all living with good cells and bad cells simultaneously in a condition of utter impermanence. She referred to the 17th century Japanese monk Takuan Soho, who wrote 100 poems he called dream poems, at the end of his life, he summoned his students and said, After I've died, please bury my body in the mountain behind the temple. Cover it with earth and go home. Read no sutras, hold no ceremony, receive no gifts. Let the monks wear their robes, eat their meals, and go on about their work as a norm, on normal days. He was asked by his disciples for some last word, and he said, I have no last word. But then, in his final moment before he died, he took up his brush and wrote the Chinese, Chinese character for dream, yume. He then put down the brush and died. This one character, dream, Maureen commented in one of her talks, symbolized for Takuan the reality of the Dharma. It went beyond talking or not talking. Is it or isn't it just a dream? When we realize that we and the universe are just a dream, when alive, we are alive through and through, and everything around us is alive. Life is a dream, death is a dream, heaven and earth and all things under the sun are just a dream. And we'll stop there and recite the four vows. <laughs> 